Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Hope you're enjoying your weekend. A little later, Holly Harris will join us to talk about why she is fighting for criminal justice reform in Washington and in state capitals around the country. That's later. But first, the national economy is humming right along, but Kentucky faces a revenue shortfall and some cities indicate they'll have a very tough time making ends meet over the next couple of years. Louisville's revenue shortfalls are in the tens of millions of dollars and the mayor there is proposing not opening up city pools this summer and canceling a class of new police officers among other measures. Lexington's picture is not that drastic but it appears there will have to be significant belt tightening. Mayor Linda Gorton proposed a budget this week that makes cuts in several areas while maintaining funding for public safety. Gorton who took office in January figured out very quickly that the numbers were going in the wrong direction. Costs are up, revenue is down. Mayor Linda Gorton is joining us today. Thank you very much uh, for coming. Thank you for having me, Bill. You, you had signaled that uh, there was going to be trouble trying to put this budget together. Uh, as you got started uh, taking a look uh, at the numbers, uh, what is happening with the, the costs and, and the, the obligations of city government? Well, uh, I learned this about my second week in office, and uh, two things are happening um, in particular. Our revenues are softening for a number of reasons. We have several sources of revenue and the main four uh, are going down. One is our occupational license fee and that's the income tax we each pay. And what's happening there is we are almost at full employment and wages are not rising and um, you know there's not a lot of hiring going on because most people are working. And then our franchise fees have gone down. That is a fee that's attached to every utility bill. And we've had good weather. So our franchise fees, our usage has gone down, not as much heat needed, um, that sort of thing. And so we have some, our revenues are, you know, slowly declining and our fixed costs have gone up. Is retail going away from local businesses as well as we see so many people uh, shopping online and having it delivered and you know sometimes you look at these uh, previously very busy shopping centers mm -hmm. and there aren't a lot of people there. Mm -hmm. I think that is happening to a certain extent and a lot of people you know they'll go online at 11 o'clock at night when most stores are closed and order things and I think that has a little bit of a an impact we're losing some jobs you know train is closing and that sort of thing but we have a really strong program to go after new jobs and to help link UK graduates to new jobs to keep those folks here and that sort of thing. So we're actively working on this. Has the city borrowed too much money? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, we, our debt right now is at a, a little over 12%, and that is 12% of our budget. And the best practice says we should stay around 10%. Our own ordinance says we should stay around 10%. So we're a little high in our borrowing. And um, that's one of the things I've done in my budget is tighten that 
expenditure. We're going to lower our credit card bills, when you, so to speak. When you were on city council, when you left though in 2014, it seems like the, the borrowing was something like $17 million. Mm -hmm. uh, when you left council, it, it, it jumped mm -hmm. and has significantly uh, increased since then for some uh, obviously uh, uh, nice projects in the yes. community, right? Yes. Uh, do you suspect you would have uh, <laughs> been concerned about uh, some of those obligations uh, had you been on council during that time? I might have been. I always watched the debt because it, it, it locks us in for 20 years. And it's like your credit card payment at home. If you get locked into a high, high debt, you've got to keep paying. I don't, you know, council members, they take the information they're given at the time and make their decisions and as you know I've been there but it is a, a high debt for us and so my budget cuts it down and I think that's a good thing. Let's talk about uh, how you have decided to approach this. You, uh, I mean as I understand it there were some who said there's the option of raising taxes and you immediately mm -hmm. ruled that out. Uh, what have you decided to do? Well, I did rule out new taxes. I think that the, the taxpayers, the public, the public expects us first to tighten our belt and show that we can live within our means. And that's what this budget does, is we live within our means. It's a, it's a good budget. It um, is balanced. It's, it keeps us financially healthy. And so I went through and in the beginning asked every division and every outside agency to cut their request by 15% from the current budget. And you know, Bill, in this current budget, we had an issue because we could see that our revenues were declining and we were not going to make this current budget. So in late January, we took action to slow hiring and we took action to encumber some, ex some money so it couldn't be spent. I have, in this budget, we will be holding vacant about 40 positions. We won't be hiring for those. Those are not in police, fire, and corrections. We will still be hiring and we'll have a new police class to replace police officers who are retiring and through attrition they're they're leaving but um, have you managed to hold public safety uh, completely harmless from from cuts in this budget well they got the 15 percent cut also every division has taken the 15 percent cut including the mayor's office the council office all of public safety they were not immune to the cut but we are keeping them whole in terms of having enough police officers, enough firefighters to do the work that we do. What is the uh, initial reaction uh, from council and from uh, the division heads who will uh, have to implement this? Well, first of all, our division directors have known about this since, since I came into office and actually I learned that some people suspected it last year that it was coming. Council members had a variety of action of reactions. Um, some of them were wondering how we got here, and 
many of them were very pleased that we're tightening our belt to live within our means, that we're not putting ourselves into a deeper hole with debt and with expenditures. And so it was kind of a mixed, you know, mixed reaction. 12-day furloughs for high-level uh, senior staff, uh, that means, means once a month they'll be off without pay. Right? No work, no pay. And you, uh, as an elected official, uh, could not be subjected to that. I mean, you may yes. have to, you're mayor all the time. You, yes. you might have to be called in the middle of the night or exactly. at any point. Exactly. But you yourself will make a personal sacrifice. Yes, I will. I felt it was important that I also furlough myself, if you will, and so I will write a check back to the government each month for what would be equal to one day a month of my pay. What is the uh, reaction to the ele the other elected uh, officials who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they they have won their office in their own right, mm -hmm. the, the sheriff, the coroner, uh, uh, the, the clerks, uh, and yes. so forth. Uh, you have asked them to, uh, to cut as well. Yes. I asked the council to cut 15%, just like all of government, and they were really good about that. It's, it's difficult because the council office and council members really, truly don't have a lot of money. And so for them, it was a big sacrifice to cut their office money. They, a lot of their money goes to neighborhood projects. And so they understood the problem we had and were willing to do that. Mayor, you don't see this getting better next year, right? Uh, no. Our, our expert people who predict revenue and things say that our fiscal year 21 will possibly be worse than this one. And so, you know, we're taking it a step at a time, Bill, and I'm, I'm always optimistic that maybe in the middle of this new budget we'll, you know, we'll find that some revenues go up a little bit. So budgets are frameworks. They're meant to be a guide for the year, and they can be amended, and with any good luck, our revenues will give us a little bump. We just don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm being very uh, careful. I want to ask you about a program you have managed to save. We will do that. Yes. We will also uh, talk about uh, uh, the fact that cities are restricted in their options as yes. to what they can do in Kentucky. Uh, we'll do that. Back with Mayor Linda Gordon in just a moment. And coming later, Holly Harris will talk about why she's fighting for criminal justice reform across the country. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers as we are visiting with Lexington Mayor Linda Gorton who this week uh, made her budget proposal uh, for the coming year and uh, now it's up to the council. I mean, your recommendation essentially is that. I mean, the council, yes. but the reception uh, indicates <laughs> that uh, they will largely follow uh, your guidance. Yes, I think they may have some places where they want to look at some tinkering, but... Um, they, for the most part, they understand what kind of situation we are in. How large is Lexington's budget? Uh, this is the general fund budget which serves everyone. It has public safety, it has pa paving of roads, it has, you know, all kinds of things, and it is a $379 million budget. It is up 1.5 percent from the current budget, so very slow growth in the budget. 
predicted. You have found uh, one way uh, to <clears throat> save what's called the, the, the para 911 system. And that, that is people who, who call the emergency line but really don't have a true emergency, mm -hmm. right? It's the Community Paramedicine Program and it has been very successful for its, it's almost been in place one year and it was grant funded. And so um, this serves people who go to the emergency room frequently but may not necessarily have an emergency. So it's been very successful. I wasn't able to fund a full, you know, $637,000 paramedicine program. But since my budget address and today, we have figured out a way to fund it and through the end of the year. And so between now and the end of the year, I'm going to be looking to some community partners to try to put together a, a group of funding from the community. It really helps our community and our hospitals most. I would think there would be cost savings there and oh. if they're not running the, uh, the yes. you know, because the first responders often go even on a fire engine before uh, exactly. an ambulance becomes available. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really excited that we were able to dig in and find a little bit of money to switch to this to get us through to the end of the year. Cities in Kentucky, Mayor, are very restricted by the state in terms of, uh, of their revenue options. Uh, you can't do a local sales tax as they do in no. Tennessee. Uh, only smaller cities uh, can enact restaurant taxes. Mm -hmm. There are lots of restaurants around, but, yes. but there's no source of revenue to mm -hmm. uh, Lexington, Louisville, even larger cities like uh, Richmond, Frankfurt, mm -hmm. uh, Bowling Green, they, they don't have that option in Kentucky. Is that of concern to you that cities need more flexibility? Absolutely. We are limited by our state legislature. They give us the options and I, I'm uh, very hopeful that in the future they will look at some different options. I think that the local option sales tax is one that many people in Fayette County would support and it, it, it would be for a specific project that people would vote on and then it would sunset and go away when the project is built. For example, a new city hall. There's no money in my budget for a new city hall, but if we had the option for people to go to the ballot and say, we want to build a city hall and use this local option sales tax, we could do that. And then when the city hall would be built, the tax would go away. It's been used wonderfully in Oklahoma City and other places to build infrastructure. This would require uh, a move by the legislature. Yes, though. it would. Do you think uh, uh, Lexington is too restricted in allowing for the development of some, you know, you talk about wanting new jobs, and yet mm -hmm. obviously there are types of jobs the community does mm -hmm. not want. Uh, it's been a relatively uh, smokestack-free uh, yes. area for many yes. years. Uh, do you, is that 
something to look at, uh, even with housing, mm -hmm. affordable housing is mm -hmm. an issue. Many people are moving to the surrounding counties. Well, it is absolutely, and one of the great things is we, our industrial board is up and running, and they will be looking at the economic land that we now have at Coldstream Park and we first get to look at the 50 acres and they will be creating a plan for that 50 acres and one of the things I'm very interested there is the high-tech ag jobs those are well-paying we're talking about things like research and development and patents and new products and that sort of thing and with hemp coming along like it is we could attract research and development jobs there and so that's really big. I did put in my budget $2 million for affordable housing. This is very important to me. And the, you know, the, the builders and developers have access to that money to help them do affordable housing here. Uh, traffic is an ongoing issue, <laughs> as, as you know, and has been for many, many years. Uh, in, in some cases, that takes money to address, but you yes. also are, are looking at, uh, at a couple of options there and have somebody in charge now who will, uh, who will do that? Yes, my new commissioner, who has environmental and public works under her, Nancy Albright, is she has been in transportation and understands traffic and she will be very important in this as we continue to grow as a city and uh, she understands some of the options that are out there that we may not be using so mayor thanks for coming thank Appreciate you for it very having much. me bill hope you'll stay with us now holly harris will be joining us next and she will talk about why she is fighting for criminal justice reform in washington and around the country in a moment Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers, and it's great to have you here on WKYT. Criminal justice reform is being addressed at the national level and in many state capitals around the country. It's an uphill push in some ways because many lawmakers have been pressured and conditioned over the years to be tough on crime and drug activity. Our guest this morning says we all need to rethink. Holly Harris heads up the Justice Action Network, and it's good to come in. We appreciate it. You were a reporter here back in the day. so it's 20 a, years ago. <laughs> it's a reunion. And then to law school and then into politics and now this. And, uh, I'm a reformed politico. Okay. So, so uh, you know, but at this time both parties mm -hmm. seem to have turned their attention to this uh, uh, wide idea of, of, of criminal justice reform. Uh, what is changing? Well, we're at a time in our country when one in three American adults has a criminal record. So a third of our country is struggling to, you know, find a good job, um, secure adequate housing, improve their education, take care of their kids. And so um, I think lawmakers are now seeing that this is something that's happening at the grassroots level, particularly in Washington. There now is a bridge between, you know, what's happening in D.C. and what's happening back home. And then, of course, you know, the opioid crisis. I mean, so many of our friends and family members have struggled with addiction. And we're not ready to throw in the towel on, on all of them. And so, you know, criminal justice reform, you mentioned being tough on crime. It is tough on crime. When we allow for second chances and we ensure that people have a pathway back to society, we lower crime rates, lower recidivism rates, and ultimately it makes us all safer. So I believe it is tough on crime. How uh, difficult is this uh, opioid situation right now? And how many people are in jail or in prison who really need to be in treatment? Um, 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions. I think we have roughly 2.2 million people incarcerated in this country. About 200,000 of them are incarcerated at the federal level, and that is overwhelmingly um, due to, to drug, drug charges and drug convictions. And yeah, I mean, you know, we're really struggling, and I think we've seen now that the, the era of, of being, you know, tough on crime, or rather lock them up and throw away the key, it didn't work, you know? I mean, things with respect to the, the, to the drug scourge are getting worse. I mean, and the drugs are getting more dangerous. You know, now we're looking at fentanyl. Um, and so, you know, what we really try to focus on is alternatives to incarceration, for particularly for your first-time, low-level, nonviolent offenders. If an individual has an addiction issue or has a mental health issue, that person shouldn't be in prison or jail. That person should be getting treatment. And if we treat the core issues that brought these people to our justice system to begin with, we're going to have much better outcomes. Is it, you've traveled to various states and various state capitals. We have 17 states now. And there has to be a different climate in each one of them, uh, politically and, mm -hmm. uh, and the, the, the experience of that particular state and, and what uh, has happened. Uh, how do you deal with it? Is there a universal message? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the universal message is that criminal justice reform is not a partisan issue. You know, it's something that crosses all ideological boundaries, gender boundaries. You know, women are the fastest growing segment of our prison population, and the vast majority of them are mothers. So we're not just looking at an epidemic of incarcerated women. We're looking at an epidemic of children growing up without their moms. As a single mom, that breaks my heart. So, um, you know, I think there is a message. There's so many different narratives, you know, with criminal justice reform. We save money. We hold government accountable. We're, we, get, we're, we become safer as a society. Um, and of course, we offer second chances to people, you know, who are looking for redemptions. And that speaks to so many in our evangelical and faith-based communities. So I think there's a narrative for everyone. And that's why we're seeing this, this huge bipartisan or rather nonpartisan movement. I know, again, there are various issues in various places, but shackling of pregnant women Absurd. Uh, is a major issue. <laughs> Yeah, sure. You. And we were actually the first state in the country to pass what's called a dignity bill that improves conditions for incarcerated women. It was Senator Julie Rocky Adams from Louisville um, who pushed that bill and again, first in the country. And so in many ways, Kentucky is leading the charge. And again, I think it's because, you know, no state um, has been more impacted by the drug scourge than, than the Commonwealth. Why, in your view, is it important that felon uh, voting rights be restored and that there be this option for expungement of, uh, of some records. Look, we have to have a pathway back to, you know, being able to live your life. And again, when we're in an age when one in three American adults has a criminal record, we're no longer talking about an obscure minority. I mean, every single American family is now impacted by our broken justice system. I mean, I think when we put a lot of these laws on the books back in the 80s and 90s, um, I think Many of these lawmakers did it with good intentions, but I think everybody now recognizes, save maybe one or two people like Tom Cotton, uh, recognizes that we went too far. And so, um, you know, I think restoration of felon voting rights, you know, in expungement is huge. Clean slate, which is automatic record sealing, which ensures that people who can't pay, you know, the fee um, or, you know, don't know how to petition for expungement can have their records wiped clean if they, you know, are able to go a period of years without crime. So um, all of these uh, issues, all of these policies, reentry policies, 
policies are incredibly important to ensure that these individuals can find jobs because what happens if they don't? If they can't find a job, if they can't secure adequate housing, if they can't improve their education or take care of their kids, they're going to return to crime, return to prison, and that's just the, that's the cycle of failure that we seek to break. Holly, as you know, there's a, there's a victim's rights movement as well. Sure. And uh, those who say, you know, that the victims have a right to know what is going on in the criminal process and they have a right to see justice done. Uh, do you have to necessarily be totally at odds with that? No, and in fact, you would be surprised. Um, the Domestic Violence uh, Coalition here in Kentucky, um, KSAP, the Sexual Assault Prevention Group here in Kentucky, you know, they were two of the first groups to come on board for our criminal justice reforms. And that's for two reasons. First of all, again, we see better outcomes with the lower crime rates and lower recidivism rates in the states that are safely reducing their incarcerated populations through the policies that we work on. But also because, you know, the vast majority of women who are incarcerated are also victims. And actually, that's what led to their addiction because, you know, they couldn't deal with this trauma. That's what led to their addiction, which is, of course, what ultimately led them to, you know, criminal charges and led them to our justice system. So many of the, these groups will tell you that, you know, so many of the people that we've incarcerated, they started out as victims. And here we are re-victimizing them all over again, rather than providing them the treatment that they need both for their trauma and their addiction what issues. What is your push right now? Is it mostly federal or is it mostly oh, no. in the states? No, look, the, the, our bread and butter is in the states that's where the vast majority of people are incarcerated um, but certainly there's a lot happening at the federal level you know we just passed this big bill the first step act the president of the united states came on board which was you know very uh ironic given you know that he ran on a, a quote tough on crime platform but it was the governors who came to visit him both democratic governors and republican governors who came to visit the president and helped him understand that to be truly tough on crime you've got to be smart on crime and that's what reform is all about you have an event uh, that is coming up uh, right before Derby the Derby, Eve. right? Yes. And that you're going to, at that time, draw attention uh, to your issue, but you're going to have fun that uh, night as well. It's a celebration of second chances, and we're doing it Kentucky style. Um, we've got some country music superstars coming in. Um, Sarah Evans, uh, Pat Green, you know, wave on wave. Mm -hmm. I won't sing it. But um, <laughs> what's really special is that John Carter Cash, um, the son of Johnny Cash, is going to sing Folsom Prison Blues, Ring of Fire. I mean, just legendary hits. Yeah. You know, his father visited a president to talk about prison reform and so it's going to be a really special evening um, you'll get to hear great music have great Kentucky food out at the Kentucky Castle you know we never were able to go there when I was growing right. up you know we tried to like jump a fence to get in and yeah. see it but you know now it's open to everyone yeah. so you see this beautiful landmark um, and in addition to that so much of what we're building out there is being sourced by groups that believe in our mission or are providing second chances to Kentuckians so it's great and a quick example on that yeah, so um, we are sourcing our flowers um, from a domestic violence shelter. We're going to be going uh, to um, a wood company that hires ex-offenders um, to, to rent out furniture. And then Deviate Kitchen, which was actually profiled in the New York Times, um, you know, who hires ex-offenders and people struggling with addiction. They're going to be uh, doing our bread products. So it's really going to be unique. CelebrateSecondChance.com. CelebrateSecondChance.com. That's where you can go to get more information and, and buy tickets. Tickets and uh, probably find out more about what you're up to. And thanks. Best bang for your buck on yes. Derby Eve. Holly, we appreciate you it's very much. It's great to be back. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT This Morning and hope you make it a good week ahead.